Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Julia Ahrens. Policy Forum Pod is produced in the beautiful surrounds of Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. We offer an amazing range of short courses and degrees. Do check them out at crawford.anu.edu.au. And I'm sure there'll be something that you might be interested in. And today I'm delighted to introduce a very special guest, Dr. Avery Poole. Hi, Avery. How are you? Well, thanks, Julia. How are you? I'm very well, Avery. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Avery is a senior fellow at the Australia and New Zealand School of Government and also an honorary lecturer at Crawford School. Avery, one of your research focuses is the internationalization of higher education. What do we mean if we talk about internationalization of curricula and how did this field pick your interest? So I think we can think about the internationalization of higher education in several different ways. One very visible way is the high number of international students who are increasingly important to Australian university enrollments and indeed budgets. Um, and I think bring many um, significant and important aspects to uh, the university campus life. We also um, think in terms of the mobility of uh, domestic students, and there is increasingly emphasis on the importance of Australian students having international experiences during their university education. And then also the internationalization of research and uh, the curricula that we teach students. So I guess it's this, uh, I'm interested in all of these, but the internationalization of the curricula is one of the um, areas that I've been focusing on lately. So why do you think this is important? Why is this an important field that we should be thinking about more? Well, I've taught for eight years in international politics or international relations at the University of Melbourne. And so I've thought a lot about why it matters to explore the world outside one's own city or state or country. I think that Australia as an island continent is um, in some ways fairly isolated from many parts of the world. And while our young people are disproportionately traveling and, and seeing the world and taking an interest in the world outside Australian borders, there's also a danger of insularity. And I think we do see evidence of nationalist attitudes and the, the risk of this spilling over into xenophobia and racism. I think it's important that we critically examine the role of higher education in encouraging young people to have a well-rounded learning experience. And uh, it, often the argument is made that it's important for careers to have an international experience, but I think it's also important just in terms of the way we think about ourselves as citizens of the world as well as citizens of our own countries. You already mentioned that if we think about internationalization, the first thing that comes to people's minds is mobility and it's people coming to, to Australia to study and vice versa. Uh, and I think one thing that will probably also pop into people's minds is the role of foreign languages in uh, in education. So you're part of a project that has been exploring the connections between Indonesian studies in Australian universities and perceptions of Indonesia on the one hand, and on the other, the connections between Australian studies and uh, at Indonesian universities and perceptions of Australia. What role did you find languages play in shaping these perceptions? So we found that language studies are certainly an important way that people in their university education can start to think more broadly about um, others, about difference, um, and also challenge the perceptions that they might have grown up with or might uh, be fed through the media, for example. So one of the driving motivations for me in this project was various survey findings um, suggesting that negative perceptions and indeed misperceptions among Australians about Indonesia are, are quite high. 
Um, so the uh, Australia Indonesia Centre based at Monash University, which funded this research, has found that nearly half of Australians have unfavourable views of Indonesia. In contrast, only about 10% of Indonesians have unfavourable views of um, about Australia. So we were interested in this disparity and also why it is that um, uh, half of Australians disagree that Indonesia is a democracy um, and a quarter don't know um, whether it is or not. So um, my colleague and I, Dafri Salim, who is a lecturer at the University Universitas Gajamada in Indonesia, um, we're interested in the role that, that tertiary education plays in, in mitigating broader societal ignorance and misperceptions. And we found that students told us in the focus groups that we ran that their perceptions had changed as a result of studying Indonesia, either in international relations subjects or um, and or Indonesian language studies. So it was partly about the opportunity to have mobility experiences and to travel to Indonesia to practice their Indonesian. It was also the experience of getting to know individual Indonesian people. And for many students, this was extremely significant because it humanised um, the Indonesian state, which often we see through the lens of the high-level diplomatic relationship or the relationship as represented in the media. And often there are negative connotations associated with those. Yeah. So are there any other factors that you can think of that impact on how Australians view Indonesia? So you said the media is one thing and then also education. Are we not talking about um, Indonesia or other uh, Southeast Asian states, for example, in uh, earlier stages of education? I think this is certainly an issue. We saw in 2012 the Australia and the Asian Century white paper um, putting a lot of emphasis on the need to increase language studies um, in regard to um, Asia in particular. So Mandarin, Japanese and Indonesian, among other languages. But as someone who has um, spent my academic career so far um, really fascinated by Southeast Asia, I think it's really interesting and important to consider why we don't have why we don't pay more attention to the immediate region um, and why we tend to focus on East Asian states to the north. So of course it's important to think about the role of China in the region. There's a huge amount of emphasis on that at the moment and the economic the significant economic states of China and Japan and South Korea have tended to dominate our consciousness when we think about East Asia. But I think Southeast Asia, apart from being a fascinating region and apart from its proximity to Australia, uh, has a lot to teach us about different cultures, different languages. Um, it's an incredibly diverse region and that's one of the reasons why I have been drawn to study it in my academic career. That sounds like a very, very important angle to take, though, because if I think about students here in Australia, many of them choose to study Japanese or Mandarin. So there is like really this overemphasis on, on East Asian states. And why do you think that is? Is it because we start too late to get people into and not and in, in the media, it's not emphasized how important it is to understand our direct neighbours? I think that's part of it. I mean, the, the diplomatic relationship between Australia and Indonesia is clearly fraught. Uh, there are often there's often a sense that it is only when negative incidents um, happen in the relationship that we hear about Indonesia at all. Um, and uh, the students that we spoke with in this study often noted that it was um, incidents such as the the Bali bombings, the arrest of the Bali Nine. Um, some of the negative connotations that are attached to the notion, the fact that the majority of Indonesia's population are, are Muslim. Um, so some students had been influenced by their parents. Some had been actively discouraged from studying Indonesian um, or if they did study Indonesian language, had been discouraged from travelling there as part of their studies because their parents were worried that it mm -hmm. was unsafe. I think we need to disconnect some of the um, high-level perceptions that are represented through the media and um, through the diplomatic relationship and think a little bit more um, critically about um, what we might learn from in focusing on the relationship um, and on Indonesian people. I think it's also this question of usefulness of university studies. So I'm sure parents would like their children to study um, useful subjects at university, but I'm interested in what this 
notion of what useful learning um, actually is. So, yeah, what, could, do, what, is, what does it mean to study a useful subject? Because many people would probably think about economic benefits and about getting a getting a good job afterwards. But you would like to challenge that in a way. That's right. I mean, I think we can certainly take an instrumental view of university education as existing primarily so that we can go on and um, make a living. Um, but I'd like to challenge the idea that university education is just about acquiring skills so that we can then deploy them in the labour market. Of course, it's important to think about our individual um, career prospects and economic security in the future. So I think that one of the things that we should think about when it comes to the so-called usefulness of university studies is what useful learning actually looks like. Uh, there are obviously instrumental reasons why we might say that um, a language like Mandarin might be more useful. Um, so we might be thinking about economic security or individual career prospects in the future, and that's absolutely fair enough. But I think there's also, um, I would also argue that if a student enjoys and is motivated by a particular area of study, whether that's Indonesian or Mandarin or philosophy or, or chemical engineering, that that is in itself useful. Um, I think that it is very important to study what motivates us and what we enjoy. Um, and I think we can't expect 18-year-olds to have entirely figured out their career trajectories. We need to be open to various experiences and explore different types of opportunities. I would argue that the university is not just about acquiring content and skills which can then be deployed in the labour market, but about learning new ways of thinking and challenging your own perceptions and attitudes about the world around you. And that in itself can lead on to opportunities. I spoke with some students in the focus groups for this um, for this project who said that they didn't initially think of Indonesian language studies as being relevant to their future careers. They they did it because they enjoyed it. They did it because it was continuing their studies from primary and high school. Um, but it turns out that through their university studies, they joined student associations. They travelled to Indonesia as part of mobility programs like the New Colombo Plan. And in some cases, they're now realising how their study of Indonesian is, in fact, um, providing career opportunities for them. So listeners, you've heard Avery challenging the notion of usefulness and really expanding our horizons in thinking critically and learning a language such as Indonesian can take you somewhere, even though you might have chosen it over Mandarin, which is believed to be more useful in terms of your economic outcomes later. But in a very, very interesting discussion we've just had here. So we're really keen to get your thoughts of what you thought of this discussion. So please reach out to us on Facebook where we are, uh, Policy Forum pod the best that's the best way to reach us or you can also get us on twitter where we are at apps policy forum or of course you can send us an email podcast at policyforum.net and please do reach out to us because we always enjoy hearing from you so let's get on to this week's topic shall we today we want to discuss australia's step up to the pacific in november last year prime minister scott morrison promised to take australia's engagement with the pacific to a new level as part of that he announced five new diplomatic missions across the region and a two billion dollar infrastructure fin financing facility but australia's relationship with the pacific is increasingly being overshadowed by the country's lack of serious action on climate change scott morrison joined leaders of 17 other pacific countries countries in Funafuti on Tuesday for the 50th Pacific Islands Forum, which came amid increasing concerns over China's influence in the region. Ahead of the forum, island leaders made clear that they didn't want to be caught up in a global power struggle and talked about how developed nations need to step up to tackle climate change. Tuvalu Prime Minister Inelia Supuoga warned that Morrison's step up will fail unless it finally takes meaningful action to address the issue. And in response, Australia offered half a billion dollars to help Pacific Island nations deal with the impact of climate change. So today we want to ask, is the step up actually addressing the Pacific's needs? And for that, we have a really great panel to unpick this topic. We have Dr. Graham Smith, who is a fellow at the ANU Department of Pacific Affairs, and he's also the host of the Little Red podcast that you might have heard of. And we also have Dr. Katerina Teiwa, who is an associate professor at the ANU School of Culture, History and Language. And she's also been a consultant with the Secretariat of the Pacific Community at UNESCO on Cultural Policy, International Dialogue and Sustainable Development. And last but not least, we have have Dr. Pishamon Yopantong from UNSW Canberra. 
She is a senior lecturer in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences there and also an Australian Research Council DECRA fellow. And it really is a fantastic lineup. And I'm more than pleased to also hand over for this discussion to my fellow podcast host, Mark Kenny. Mark is a senior fellow at the Australian Studies Institute. And you will have heard him if you follow our podcast on the Democracy Sausage Pod, which he is hosting every Monday. So do check it out if you haven't already. But for now, let's hear from our panel. Welcome, Pishamon. Hello. Glad to have you along. And Graham. Hey. Good to see you. And Katerina. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Big issues to talk about here with the specific step up. Uh, Scott Morrison promised to take the issue of Australia's engagement to the Pacific to a new level last year. Um let me get an impression from all of you, you know, how important is this step up and has it taken any form so far? Uh, perhaps Pishamon, we'll start with you. It is significant, um, especially the fact that it is geared towards countering China's growing presence in the region. Uh, the fact that it, it has been kind of created um, with such an intention means that Australia seems to be on a path that will make it even more confrontational um, against the Chinese, which is something that we haven't seen to this degree, I would say, before. So it is significant. Um, it's an interesting development, especially for the Pacific Island countries themselves. Uh, but it's also interesting to see um, the Chinese response to it as well. Graham? Yeah, look, I'd have a slightly different take. Um, I, I think it sort of started before a lot of the really um, heavy conflict with China began in, in 2017, and it was in the, the genesis of it uh, predated that. But now it's very much seen in those terms. Um, and, and I see it as not entirely a negative thing in that Australia, you know, as is well documented, um, has been not thinking much about the region at all. And if this gets us to actually contemplate who we are in the region and what we're doing there, um, I think it's a, a really useful thing. Sure, China might be the impetus, but it could lead to, you know, a, a much needed rethinking of, of what Australia means to the Pacific and, you know, what we can um, usefully do in the Pacific. And Katerina? I agree with Graham that it's not new that Australia has been so deeply engaged with the Pacific. It has been through its aid and development program and through various education avenues for a long time. But in terms of the visibility of um, the Pacific um, in Australia's foreign uh, policy and also domestic media, frankly, this is kind of new in that you don't often hear about the Pacific in Australia. You hear about it um, in terms of the aid and development um, kind of programs and and policies. So it's not new, but it's new in terms of the, the geopolitical stakes, I suppose, um, that uh, there's this absolute rush for the Pacific at the moment coming from all angles, all countries, all over the planet is suddenly absolutely focused on the Pacific. I'm sure it's partly because of, of Chinese, um, you know, policies and programs and, and aid in the region. Um, but it's also because of climate change. It's, it's for a whole range of, of geopolitical reasons. So Australia has suddenly realized that it kind of dropped the ball on engaging with the Pacific in closer terms. So it's always been important. It's always been, you know, it's been their patch, uh, in service of the United States. They take care of security and development issues in the Pacific, but suddenly, that's not working anymore because the Pacific has recognized that the way Australia has been doing it has been in rather self-serving ways. So now all of a sudden the Pacific is pushing back against Australia and saying, okay, that's all very nice that you have, you have these programs in the Pacific, but climate change um, is something that's very concerning to us and it's not reflected in your own domestic energy policies. So I think there are a whole range of complex issues going on here with the Pacific step up that have to be uh, analysed. Yeah, well, it's an interesting point, uh, Katerina, because climate change obviously is, you know, the, this this primary concern for Pacific nations, but it's not in and of itself a, a key to the step up from what I can understand. Uh, you know, so in other words, Australia would like to talk about all the things that it is doing 
and the Pacific nations would like to talk about the stuff that Australia isn't doing, particularly in as much as it goes to climate change. Graham, why do you think this step up was necessary in the first place? What, you know, what, what's its main kind of um, goal here? Look, I think its main goal um, is is security focused, as you've been sort of suggesting in your in your remarks there. Um, I think the climate change thing is is really interesting in that the government is really caught in a bit of a bind as to you know how to position climate change in the step up. And if you look at in terms of outlay, I mean Australia is spending far more on climate change in the Pacific than than any other any other donor, despite you know the terrible domestic signals and our complete failure to do anything in our domestic economy. So you almost have this <coughs> schizophrenic approach to to climate change. Can I, and, can I just ask yeah. you for a bit of clarification there? You say we're spending more money than any other donor. Uh, on climate change, but in, in what form does that take? Is that in renewable energy uh, projects? Uh, mitigation, adaptation, um, mostly. But you can't hold back the oceans and that's the key thing. Indeed, yeah. So it's it's one of those sort of strange things. And he, he went on Alan Jones and, you know, basically laid this out. I mean, it, it almost sounded like a thought bubble where he said, look, you know, obviously we don't believe in climate change, but we have to do something about it because the Pacific believes in climate change, which is a, a very strange and, and sort of almost, um, you know, existential, <laughs> you know, we, we're doing it because someone else cares. It, it doesn't sound like a very wholehearted uh, approach to climate change. Yeah, uh, obviously this climate change issue is just so key. I was reading a, uh, a very powerful, a very strong op-ed piece in the Sydney Morning Herald a couple of days ago from the Reverend James Bhagwan. He's the General Secretary of the Pacific Conference of Churches. And he he went very directly at Scott Morrison, uh, particularly targeting Scott Morrison's Christianity. I mean, this is obviously a religious minister himself, but he's targeting Scott Morrison's Christianity. And I'll just read you a couple of uh, you know key sentences from that piece to give you a sense of just how strong uh, the opinion is that he's uh, that he's uh, articulating here. He says, we've watched as our homes are eaten away by rising tides and Australia allows its emissions to rise and then uses accounting tricks to create the illusion of meeting its inadequate Paris targets. As one person of faith to another, I would tell the, I would like to tell the Australian Prime Minister, this is not godly leadership. I mean, there's no mincing of words here. So if, if that's representative of sentiment in the Pacific, uh, the step up um, obviously be welcomed, but it's got a big kind of roadblock in, in, in front of it in terms of uh, how these things are being perceived. Pishamon? Well, a colleague of mine, Luke Fletcher at the Jubilee Research Centre, and I released a report called Enter the Dragon. And in it, we did argue that climate change, environmental concerns, human security needs to be at the forefront of the Pacific step up, in particular in considerations about the design of the Australian infrastructure financing facility for the Pacific as well. So in that regard, it is promising um, to see that climate change, you know, climate mitigation, adaptation, and other um, issues are now coming to the fore. Um, having said that, it is the case that the, the Pacific Step Up is very much, as Graham was saying, a security initiative in the sense that it is about realigning um, geopolitical dynamics. Um, it is about countering China at the end of the day. And for that reason, the, the key challenge, in my opinion, is keeping um, the interests of the Pacific Islanders themselves, kind of their interests um, at the center um, and not to to kind of jeopardize their interests in any way as a result of Australia's attempt to pursue um, this kind of geostrategic competition with China. How significant is this geo-competition with China? I mean, it's talked about a lot by, by, by people like us, by people who are observing uh, in, a, in a third party sense, I suppose. Um, the way I've heard it discussed by some experts is that uh, Pacific Islanders are not concerned about China at all. They, they're obviously concerned about climate change, not concerned about China. The official line from the Australian government is that it's not doing it as a counter to China. It's doing it as part of its responsibilities in, in the region. Um, Anyone have a view about how significant this uh, program of, of of expenditure? And maybe perhaps you could even talk to what the program of expenditure is from China in in uh, Pacific nations. <laughs> That's very much my question. Um, yes, yeah, so I think um, 
I mean, it's interesting. I, I think there are complicated views amongst Pacific Islanders. I think that there's no single view about China. Um, its appeal, if you like, is a developmental narrative, the idea that China was a poor country and through infrastructure spending and through in government investment, it lifted itself out of poverty. Whether that's true or not is, of course, open to debate. Um, but you do meet Pacific Islanders and, and even um, MPs who are very concerned about, for example, the persecution of Christians um, within China. This is something that's registering. Likewise, what's happening in Hong Kong, um, you know, that is something that's permeating their consciousness. So I, I think it would be an exaggeration to say there was no concern. And in many ways, if you're talking about, um, you know, ordinary Pacific Islanders, because of the influx of um, Chinese retail investors, there's a lot of xenophobia um, going around and some of it quite justified because this is something that's in your face every day, that jobs that should be going to locals have been occupied by, um, you know, if you like, what is seen as a foreign power, even though these people are there off their own bat. Um, I think on the geopolitical side, uh, you know, the the Taiwan factor is is really back in play. So that is one thing that has, has given this added friction that wasn't there, say, five years ago. And it's really on in places like Solomon Islands in Tuvalu, um, which will host the PIF this week or next week. Uh, this, this week, week. okay, yeah. yeah, which will host the PIF this week, and and you can expect another diplomatic bust up in that. I think it's almost guaranteed that some sort of confrontation between China and Taiwan will take place at the PIF. It's a bad look, um, but it's it's part of the change dynamics because China really wants to be rid of the DPP in Taiwan, and anything they can do to humiliate Taiwan, they will do. And the Pacific is just a handy forum to do so. Why is that the case? Um, it is really central to China's narrative of national rejuvenation, the idea that China has been dismembered by the colonial powers mm. and to bring back Hong Kong, to bring back Taiwan is part of China restoring itself as a great power to overcoming century of humiliation as it's referred to. And the fact that six of Taiwan's allies are in the Pacific um, means in many ways that the centre of China's current humiliation is the Pacific. Right. That's uh, an interesting point. But but there is a diversity of Chinese experiences in the Pacific as well. So, you know, I've talked before about how there's old Chinese and there's new Chinese. So there's this perception of old Chinese and new Chinese. So there are a lot of um, Chinese families who've been in the Pacific for a very long time and have intermarried with Pacific Islanders. So I think it's also important not to homogenize China in the Pacific or to conflate um, all Chinese and Chinese activity in the Pacific with China and this kind of geopolitical narrative. But I also believe that for any other, you know, country um, or culture operating in the Pacific. Yeah, and, and there's one anecdote from my fieldwork in, in Solomon Islands. Um, the, the Chinese shopkeepers in Solomon Islands do not want Solomon Islands to switch um, back to China because they see that as disadvantaging them commercially because they expect that will lead to more Chinese migration. So far from there being this team China, it's, it's, a, it's, it's very divided and it's very much dependent, as it is in Australia, when you came, what your background is. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's an immensely complex diaspora. Can I just very quickly interject into that conversation as well? I recently came back from China and I was um, talking to people about Australia's step up um, and what the Chinese response is or how does China now perceive Australia's role within the region. And I have to say it hasn't really changed that much. Um, the topic of the Pacific itself still isn't kind of like the priority topic within Chinese policy making circles. Um, it's very much the case that China still views Australia as a middle power, however that's defined. Um, and so as a result, they are still very much preoccupied about the trade wars with the United States and with the Hong Kong issue now more so than with the Pacific Islands and, you know, what kind of geostrategic power play is going on there. Um, having said that, I was asked, why is it the case that Australia seems to hate China so much? Um, because this seems to be a, a kind of a rising, a growing trend. Um, everything from, you know, saying that Chinese people here are spies down to um, all sorts of other accusations. So I think it's it's interesting that within China that the attention to the Pacific isn't to the same degree as what we're seeing here in Australia. Um, but at the same time as well, it is very much the case that what's happening in the Pacific now isn't necessarily different from what's been happening in other parts of the world where you're seeing growing Chinese investment and this also accompanying fear that China uh, may be wielding its political and 
economic clout in ways that might not necessarily be conducive um, to the established powers, but also to host societies. Yeah, it, it's it strikes me that uh, to some extent that the the Pacific Island nations find themselves in the happy position. It's been in a pretty unhappy position in lots of ways in the past, and I guess on, in in respect of climate change, a quite desperate situation. But nonetheless, there's a sort of a marginal seat situation that they find themselves in at the moment, where uh, two wealthier uh, nations are looking to exert influence and to do so by way of assistance and economic involvement, engagement uh, and defence engagement and the like. Uh, so there's, uh, is there a sense that uh, in, in the Pacific Islands that they are, um, one, welcoming this competition between China and Australia and, uh, and able to play it off to their advantage? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I really think it depends on what scale you're talking about. So, you know, when you're talking about nation states as these actors doing things in places, and if you're not talking about people, then you have a very skewed sense of really what's happening on the ground and how people feel. Um, my sense is, is the rush in the Pacific is not that great for people on the ground. It, it isn't at all. Um, so I've just been in Palau where, you know, people on the ground were talking about how these struggles over power are playing out within the tourism industry, for example, in terms of, you know, people blocking certain kinds of tourists versus others. And really what people in Palau care about is their environment and the impact of all of this tourism on, on the environment. So there's this assumption that, uh, you know, when you're sitting in the in the good seat, all of a sudden it's going to bring great economic and other kinds of benefits. And that's not true at all. Geopolitical power plays don't always translate into economic benefit for people on the ground. They actually result in an increased securitization of everything on the ground. And in places like Palau in the North Pacific, Palau where Australia is about to create a new high commission and a new high commission in Marshall Islands and establish their presence over there. People remember World War II. There are elderly people who still remember how horrible it is to be in the middle of a geopolitical game mm. between um, powers um, for whom they, they Pacific Islanders have nothing to do with their conflict, nothing whatsoever. So I feel like the moral... Um, problem here really, really requires a look at history. And Pacific Islanders are not at all, uh, don't have short memories at all. Uh, historically, they, you know, they, they, they still honor their ancestors. And, and I'm talking about ancestors that go back 5,000, 6,000 years ago. They have long memories in terms of what it's like to be a pawn in other people's economic and geopolitical games. So this is serious stuff. The whole security narrative, I think, is problematic for people on the ground. So does that mean there's a high level of... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cynicism about the step up. Um, I think, you know, in places that are a bit further afar from, from Australia. So, you know, in terms of when, when Australia talks about the Pacific, they, they really mean Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu and Fiji and places that are quite close. They're often thinking about the Southwest Pacific and they're projecting all the things that they think about the Southwest West Pacific into the rest of the Pacific. So people from afar are quite, Curious, and they're sort of like, right, what is all of this Australian interest? Um, again, when I talked to people on the ground in Palau, they said, you know, we're getting this influx of funding for all of these different programs like gender, et cetera. It's great. That's nice. Thank you so much for, for bringing that. But, but they're also bringing their own approaches and their own frameworks with this funding. And it has nothing to do with how we want to do things on the ground. So yay money. Mm. But what if people on the ground can't figure out themselves what to do with it? Whenever I hear more money here, more money there, what does it mean at all in terms of people's own agency, in terms of determining how they want to do better in 
all of these different areas of development, they don't often get a say in it because all of this money comes with these set international frameworks for how to do it right. And often it doesn't match reality on the ground in the islands. Why is that such a common story? I mean, it's a common story even with, uh, you know, they're rolling out of indigenous programs in Australia exactly. over many years. It's, 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 it's a problem you, you hear about all the time. Is there never going to be any improvement in this? Because there, there is plenty of evidence to suggest that when you actually put that money in the hands of communities and allow them to determine the best way to improve their circumstances, they, they are able to do so much more efficiently. You have to respect them and value them first. If you think you know better than communities on the ground, you'll never well, you give don't. them the power to do it themselves. You have to respect them as equals. You have to you have to think they have knowledge that is actually of value. Frankly, they have knowledge of the environment that we can learn from. Part of sorry, part of the issue is really the bureauc- bureaucratization of the aid and development sector as well. I mean, very much they they're very much in this kind of log frame theory of change model of understanding how the world works, right? So it's when you give money to the locals, you have to wait. You have to wait and see the consequences, the outputs, and that takes a long time. But when you're constrained by donor um, demands, it means that they want to see outcomes immediately. And as a result, it kind of facilitates that top-down model of implementation. So they so want I, to see like, uh, for example, infrastructure built or exactly. you know, uh, new, new, new that's buildings. Right. A new and, road, a new yeah. highway, because that's visible. Those are visible. fast things. That's you right. know, infrastructure, a road, a building, a sports center, those are fast things. Yeah. But if you really, you know, if you really want things to be different on the ground, that always takes time. Cult- culture change absolutely takes takes time. And for me, it's the lack of culture being significant in the thinking and development, in the thinking of the theory of change. Uh, you know, I have no problem with log frames and, and, you know, thinking about outputs and outcomes and all of that stuff. That's actually useful. It's the time frame and the expectations around how people want to see, you know, things improve on the ground. That's the problem. Like people are quite stuck in this very short term, you know, like give me some, you know, some evidence right away that something good has happened. That That's the problem. And that's that's the problem with a lot of industrial countries in general. They well, want kind of like a quick fix. Yeah, that's true. They do. But they also, I think, are constrained to some extent by the need for accountability for, uh, you know, to be able to show that, you know, this dollar has traveled through this path and, and resulted in this outcome. And if you're talking longer time frames, you're talking about putting money into communities and allowing a much higher degree of self-determination, I guess, to, you know, um, treasury accountants in Australia or somewhere else, that's going to sound like a a recipe for unaccountability for money flowing. I actually think that's fair. Accountability is very, very important. And and I would go a step further to say I'm not sure money does all of this good work generally. If you look back historically in the Pacific where money is thrown at communities, usually in exchange for natural resources, mm. very little good comes out of it. So I, I'm I'm of the p- opinion that sometimes money and extra funding isn't always the answer. So to it's money, it's engage, it's it's money with engagement, with involvement, with respect. I mean, respect. It's dialogue you- first. Yes, it's dialogue and understanding, and and actually everyone sitting at the table and going, let's just like back off a second. You can't throw money at absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. There are lots of communities in the Pacific who have had money in compensation for land, money in compensation. For for mining, money in compensation for resource extraction. Those are usually the most devastated communities, the communities that have lost out. So it's actually learning. If we're going to talk about evidence and learning from an evidence base, actually learn from the past. What has happened? What went wrong? How can we do better? Let's look at the, um, the, the I was going to say the pivot, but funnily enough, it's not that the, it, it, I, I do see some step sort of analogy up. here. It's the step up. But is there an analogy actually with the with the with the uh, US pivot to to Southeast Asia or to you know with stationing troops in Australia and pivoting to the Pacific under under Obama in this in the sense that there's a strong kind of rhetorical uh aspect to the step up as well as the money and and how is that seen in 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 the Pacific nations is there a return of respect from Australia to these countries that perhaps had been lacking in the past or am I just reaching here? 
So I think it's interesting that you mentioned the pivot because in many ways the pivot was the start of a lot of the – I would identify three separate geopolitical narratives that you now have contending in the Pacific. So the pivot in many ways gave rise to the Belt and Road Initiative. It was a response to feeling sort of hemmed in on the Pacific side. So we'll develop um, trade routes to the West and, and open up the potential there. So that gave birth to the Belt and Road Initiative. At the same time, almost um, immediately after that, you have this Indo-Pacific um, narrative that is largely driven by the US but also adopted um, by Australia and New Zealand. And at the same time and possibly more significantly in the long term is a Pacific narrative of the Blue Pacific, the idea that the Pacific covers an immense area of the world rather than seeing the Pacific states as tiny and fragile, seeing it as an immense region and with immense potential if people can work together and, and particularly around environmental matters to really, you know, realize the potential of this huge area of the planet. Um, so, so yeah, I think those, those three things are very much interlocked. In terms of whether the, um, the pivot is like the step up, um, I, I think uh, the step up is a bit more complicated than that. It, it has non-security aspects to it. It has um, aid aspects, cultural aspects to it. They're not necessarily foregrounded in, in what we see in the newspapers, but I, I think it's it's a different beast to the uh, the pivot. And does it ex- is it an admission by Australia that it has been negligent in this area in the past? I mean, I think you might have said at the, at the beginning that or someone did anyway, that we've, Australia's tended to sort of uh, take it for granted, look, looked over the Pacific rather, uh, you know, a great deal in, in uh, recent history. And the step up really is an admission, it seems to me, that uh, that's been neglected and uh, Australia is trying to refocus in its own region. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, it's an admission of, of neglect. Um, and it's also, if you like, an admission that you know, we need to to do things differently in the Pacific to what we've been doing in the last few years. I had a train of thought there. It's gone. Do you well, want to can, run with it, mate? Can, I, can I jump in there? <laughs> because for me, you know, I'm so skeptical of this Pacific step up, but one of the good outcomes of the Pacific step up could be an encouragement of the general Australian population to gain Pacific literacy. So there was this huge Asian literacies push that's been going on for what now, like 20 years? Longer, Everyone, longer. longer. 1980s, I yeah, remember. Yeah, okay, 1980s, right? So learn Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and Indonesian. Like everyone get literate. Like this is our part of the world. We are part of the Asian family. Hmm. So if Australia now suddenly would like to be part of the Pacific family, a great demonstration of that would be an encouragement of increased education about the Pacific and understanding through a Pacific literacy program, say through something like Pacific Studies. The ANU is the only university at the moment in the whole of Australia that offers degrees in Pacific Studies and majors and minors. The lack of of those offerings in other universities is an indication of Australia not thinking the Pacific's that important to learn more about or more specifically to learn from because it's it depends on which disciplines you're talking about. Just putting together a Pacific security program Program doesn't tell me that you're going to be learning about history and culture and society and kinship, you know, using mm, all of those mm. terms that are becoming quite popular at the moment. That's that's not that kind of program. That's a quite real deep one. Really. A real right, exactly. It's quite staggering mm. because the Pacific Studies has been here at ANU since 1947. So it's gone up and down and disappeared and now coming back in a different way through a securitized kind of lens. But you need a whole range of knowledge to be able to have respect for people. For me, this is the thing. It's about respect and it's about equality and treating people equally. If you're around the table, you know, you you value who they are, not just, you know, uh, oh, those are those countries that want money from us. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it it, it, it ought to be point. part of the step up, really, um, that, uh, the you know, the, Money should be being directed by the Commonwealth uh, to uh, those sorts of courses that you're talking about to build that kind of literacy and appreciation. Exactly. And Um, we have wonderful Pacific scholars all over Australia. But even more importantly, we need Pacific scholars who are Indigenous Pacific Islanders. That's another big glaring gap in Australia. If you're looking around for Pacific experts, rarely are they Pacific people. That's frankly weird. 
I mean, I have to say though, I mean, it's the same problem with get, you know getting Asian literacy up to scratch as well.、Um, and even now, there are challenges with you know、um, funding.、Um, yes, but my daughter can learn Indonesian in primary school. Yeah, there was、so、an economic、valued. there was an economic narrative associated with that, though, wasn't there? That which was you、yes. know Australia is part of the、yeah. Asian region, the Southeast Asian region. We want to be has, with our rich neighbors. That's right.、There's, they don't think of Pacific people as rich、here. and valuable. And do they have history and like some important civilization or something? You know that that's just not part of the discourse. That's a problem. That's really the barrier to. Good relations, where you're talking diplomatic or otherwise, it's really getting past inherently a racism towards the Pacific.、Mm. I, sorry,、uh, sorry, no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. no、uh, mine is going to be a bit about the future, I guess,、um, based on that discussion. So you might want to go first. Yes,、yeah. okay. Look, just to add, add to Katerina's point, I mean, a lot of the cynicism I think that is felt in the Pacific、um, goes beyond Australia. I think、uh, when you look at, say, America and the UK, who are sort of returning to the region. Uh, the question that you get asked again and again by Pacific Island is: is where were you?、Hmm. Um, so just showing up is a really, really important part of it. But I think we've got to move beyond just showing up and say, okay, can you match this with genuine support for these programs? Because Katerina is talking about the poor state of Pacific studies、um, in Australia compared to the US. I mean, we're you know we're in a golden no, era. No, we're not. You, There are、think? more Indigenous Pacific scholars with PhDs、mm. in the US and New Zealand compared with Australia. So actually, the University of Hawaii has a massive amount of Pacific expertise, and I think it is important for ANU in Australia、mm. to actually shift their narrative a bit and to and to understand really what Pacific studies looks like in the US and New Zealand because、mm. it's huge and it's populated by Pacific. Islander scholars, scholars with PhDs at associate professor and full professor levels. Okay,、uh, but what I'm curious about is if you have this expertise, you go to DC and you try to find policymakers who are knowledgeable about the Pacific, and you will struggle. You will struggle、and、to、I、get beyond that, what's, on your, what's on your hand. That's the problem in the American approach: is it's is the intellectual. Space is not as well connected to the policy space compared with Australia.、Mm. In Australia, frankly, Pacific studies and policy are married to each other. It is almost the opposite in in the United States, but in New Zealand, they are actually linked,、mm. and they're linked because the Pacific diaspora matters in New Zealand.、Mm. I mean, New、right. Zealand's、yeah. different. We, we've talked yeah, about this before,、exactly. but yeah, I mean, New Zealand has four Pacific Islanders in their cabinet.、Yeah. We are now. Patting ourselves on the back because we have an Indigenous man for the first time as the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. I mean,、mm. it, it, it's absurd that it's taken us until 2019 for that to happen.、Um, so the situation in New Zealand is very different because Pacific Islanders have political power that they simply do not have in the Australian electorate. Bishamon. Well, I, I wanted to add, given that New Zealand has been mentioned so many times, but I think New Zealand is also a big part of this puzzle, isn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, Australia needs to ramp up its cooperation with New Zealand as well, and to stop neglecting its close neighbour.、Mm-hmm. Um, and it's already the case, right, that New Zealand has just signed a defence agreement with the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and that kind of went under the radar.、Um, but the point I wanted to make on on the back of what was just discussed is that. My concern is the sustainability of all of this. I mean, it's great that we're talking about the Pacific Step Up now. Sure, we can debate whether or not it'll have positive or negative consequences. But what? How long will this last?、Um, is this a passing phase? Is it something that Austra- the Australian government is committed to doing for the next twenty to thirty years? I mean, this cannot be a short-term engagement. It needs to have. It needs to create the roots, right? To to create that cultural. Awareness to create the educational people-to-people ties that are so important to Australia's kind of rejuvenated role in the region.、Um, so my concern is that we've not yet received clarity as to how long this will go for, how much more money will be put into it, where will the government find the money to continue funding these projects, these initiatives.、Um, and to me, I think that's the question that needs to be answered urgently in order for us to better assess whether or not it will, in the end. Um, be beneficial to both Australian interests, but also to the interests of the Pacific Islands. And maybe、themselves. they could be thinking about ways to build kinships without all of this money. Because、mm. frankly, it doesn't cost money to build good relationships、True. and kinships. You don't need a whackload of money. That's right. But it's, it's interesting that you say a twenty to thirty year time frame, and I certainly don't wish to make light of this. But、um, in the way that perhaps Peter Dutton did at one stage,、uh, but. 
some of these countries are saying they don't have 20 or 30 years anyway because mm, of this climate right. change issue. That's right. Um, they've watched the Adani debate unfold in Australia. Um, the, the, the op-ed I cited earlier, uh, it's mentioned in there that uh, if this were – if Adani or if the Galilee Basin were a country, it would end up being the seventh largest emitting country. If it was a country itself, it would be the seventh largest emitter in the world. Um, so, I mean, this is the massive kind of – roadblock in this whole thing, isn't it? Well, I mean, and again, it's not even clear where the money for this climate fund is going to be coming from. We're told that it'll get pulled out from this existing aid programs. Yes, it's exactly. money being moved around. Moved around. But again, you know, it, is it sustainable doing that? I mean, how long can you keep moving money around? This is an issue that's ex- urgent, it's exigent, and as a result, it should demand its own kind of, you know, its its own earmarked funds, right, arguably. Um, so to me, it's, it's the... That's my concern, which is the rhetoric is there, the policies may well be there, but implementation, when the time comes for implementation, um, how will it actually be implemented for how long? Had there been a change of government at the last election, as indeed uh, was widely believed to be the case, was there going to be a different approach? I mean, I know Richard Miles had, uh, I was at the press club uh, some time ago, um, probably 18 months ago, two years ago when he spoke and he focused very heavily on Australia's relationship with the Pacific and described it as being underdone and and detailed a number of, uh, you know, really entrenched social and economic problems in many of these communities, particularly things like uh, levels of, of domestic violence and the like. Um, obviously, we, we, will have a fu- we will have future elections. There will be changes of government. Is there a, a, a different... Uh, dimension potentially to Australia's engagement with Pacific under a Labor government that can be identified or is it or, or is this sort of you know all kind of just tinkering as one of those academics entwined with government um, I would say uh, they were pretty vague about the details of what they were going to do they, they certainly talked to this good is game. Labor uh, labor yeah. yeah and even on their climate change policies they were quite vague about what they were going to do because they obviously didn't want to resurrect a carbon tax despite the fact that the carbon tax was working and, and could be demonstrated <laughs> to be working. Pity that, yeah. they, they were just too you know, scared to take it to the election. Um, I think in some ways that there's, there is actually bipartisan agreement um, emerging on this issue, which is you know, a, a rare beast um, within the current political system. And uh, it's partly on one side of politics driven by a securitization um, issue. But I think you know, it, because the more it's discussed, the more I think, even though they don't have a constituency of Pacific Islanders to answer to, the more MPs are coming on board and going, oh, actually, you know, maybe we should take this seriously after all. Um, so I think it, it's hard to say whether things would have been different under Labor. Certainly, it would have been much more welcome because of the climate change issue um, in the Pacific. But Morrison has the edge of, of his religion, if you like, and, and I think that does play quite well in a way in the Pacific. Yes, we've already seen Do you seen, agree, Katarina? Uh, I think, I mean, to go back to you bringing up James Bhagwan, I'm so uh, grateful that Reverend Bhagwan wrote that. I, I, um, I know him from, you know, uh, from Fiji when we were all teenagers working in the media. Um, and the, the church leaders in the Pacific are absolutely 100% all over the climate issue. And, and frankly, with the exception people, possibly of the president of Kiribati. Uh, oh, the current president. Yes. Well, in a slightly different way. Again, the politicization of climate change is unhelpful to everybody, including Australians. So church leaders and, and critical uh, thinkers in the church from Pacific Theological College, from the Pacific Conference of Churches have always been at the forefront of thinking critically about Pacific regionalism, about environmental issues and about indigenous issues. These are the kinds of people actually that Policymakers and academics need to be talking more too, actually, because we don't often hear their voices. So I'm so glad that that piece appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald and that people like him are getting their, his voice out there because he represents a lot of similar thinking on the ground. Mm, and the church is really influential. Church is in, really in influential, many but not countries. necessarily maybe Scott Morrison's version of the church. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are many it's flavors in the Pacific too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so we're running short of time here, of course, as is always the case. It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I want to ask you all if you uh, could uh, suggest one, make one recommendation to the Australian government on how to get the step up right, what that would be. 
who would like to kick off? I'm, I'm, I know I'm sort of putting you on the spot there, but who would like to kick off with the first uh, attempt at that? <laughs> it's actually easier, I think, to go first when it comes to these types of issues. So I'm going to say something that's very, I think, common sense. Um, but it's just simply listen to the locals, right? If you want to, if the step up is meant as an initiative, a campaign to win hearts and minds in the region, um, whether or not vis-a-vis China's growing presence, then you have to listen to the locals. You have to um, ensure that their interests, their needs are at the crux of these initiatives. Um, it's not sufficient to just be thinking about Australia's geostrategic interests or national interests um, because those types of projects are doomed to fail. We've seen that in the case for China. Um, we've even seen it in the case for Taiwan on certain occasions. So this is something that Australia should not be repeating. Um, it should not be committing the same mistakes that other players, including itself in the past, has committed um, in the region. So it's really just simply um, dialogue, consult, um, listen to what the people have to say and try to ensure that the projects you implement, you know, create, generate positive benefits um, at all levels of society. Look, I'd say if I was to come up with a pithy recommendation, I'd say don't try to be China light. Um, China does certain things very well. They do other things very badly. Uh, so trying to imitate uh, what their appeal is in the Pacific isn't going to work for us. We we are not China. Um, the things that drive our aid program are not the things that drive the Chinese aid program. Um, that's not to say our aid program is ideal, um, but I think we need to stick to doing what we do well. And, and presumably that means exercising our regional advantage. I mean, we are actually here and they are not. Indeed. And uh, when you say um, we and they, uh, I think it's very important to unpack the they. Uh, I mean, reading Hugh's book, it's remarkable how little he says about China uh, and how assumed it is to be this monolithic thing that is expanding in the Pacific. But in fact, when you look at it up close, it's a range of actors whose interests do not align. And we should be really mindful of that. And nor should we buy into this, you know, China will grow endlessly for the next 20, 30 years. Certainly, you know, no one you speak to within China is 100% sure of that. So uh, so we shouldn't be making that assumption either. Katerina? Um, I agree uh, with Peshamon about uh, greater and deeper understanding. And I think... Um, it's really important, you know, when you say talk to locals or talk to people that, that a diverse range of voices is engaged. It's very easy for people in suits to go and meet people in suits. And I see that happening all the time. So uh, there's a qualitative aspect of this that has to be attended to. But even further than that, I'm going to go back to the issue of Pacific literacy. For me, this is serious and, and really, really important in Australia but also in terms of giving Pacific Islanders who come to Australia or, or scholarships to go elsewhere and study to also do Pacific studies. So there's always this idea that, oh, they don't need to learn about themselves and their culture. Actually, we need more Pacific people who can speak in that Pacific study space space and speak to these issues. So I'm all for deeper literacy, understanding, equality around the table in terms of education for both Australians and Pacific people. Katerina, thanks very much. Pishamon, Graham, it's been a great pleasure talking to you and very informative. Listeners, don't forget to stick around for part three of our podcast, where we'll go over some of your questions, comments, and suggestions for future podcasts. But for now, let's hear from Sarah Bison, Martin Pierce, about their all-new podcasting for Policymakers course here at the Crawford School. Have you ever wanted to make a podcast? Got a story you want to tell? Or an audience you want to reach through the magic of audio? Then we've got the short course you've been waiting for. I'm Martin Pierce, And I'm Sarah Bice. And we're running a very special podcasting for professionals short course here at the ANU's Crawford School. We'll teach you everything you need to get your idea into audio and out to an audience. We'll answer all the questions you might have, like... What should I call my podcast? What formats work? What equipment do I need? How do I do interviews? How do I write a script? How the hell do I use this audio editing software? How do I reach my adoring Spotify audience? And how do I know if I've been successful? So many questions, Martin. And so many answers, Sarah. Plus, you'll get hands-on experience right here in the Crawford Podcast booth. And you'll get to meet some of the Crawford Podcast gang. That's Podcasting for Professionals short course. Find out more at bit.ly forward slash policy podcasting. That's bit.ly forward slash policy podcasting.
Thank you so much, Katarina, Graham and Peter Moon for this fantastic discussion. And listeners, we want to know what you thought of it. So please keep sending us your comments and your questions. We are on Twitter where we are at Apps Policy Forum or we are on Facebook where the Policy Forum pod group there. So do join us there. And you can also, of course, email us podcast at policyforum.net because each week we have the chance to go over some of your questions and comments that you sent to us. And I'd like to start with an article, The Free and Open Indo-Pacific, A Way Forward by Simi Mehta. And in this article, Simi writes that the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy presents a versatile tool for democracies to grow together in the region, as it is both a counter to the Belt and Road Initiative and an arena for economic cooperation. And we had a comment by Ted Pinaflor on Facebook. And he wrote, that's why the made up nine dash line, which is which the arbitral tribunal declared void up initio, does not have any place in the free world of today. The Chinese concept was devised to control the critical sea lane for selfish agenda. And I still have Avery here with me. So Avery, what are your thoughts on that comment? Well, I thought, Julia, this was a really interesting comment. And the thing I'd like to pick up on in particular was the reference to the term selfishness. So all states, I would argue, want to protect their interests. And the key is, I think, whether they see the potential for coordination of their policies where these interests can be seen as mutually beneficial. So from an international relations theoretical perspective, we might think of this in terms of a debate between a neorealist perspective in which all states are effectively pursuing their own interests at the expense of others, so it's a zero-sum game, um, or if we might think about a more neoliberal institutionalist perspective where um, the states see the potential for mutual interests. So the, the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy seems to suggest at least this openness to um, a, a policy coordination, if you like, the idea of building an open, non-exclusive system of infrastructure, and that is often contrasted with China's approach. Thank you, Avery, for your thoughts on that. And thank you so much, Ted, for sending us your comment. We really love hearing from you. And also thank you to everyone else who has commented. And a reminder to please keep sending us your comments. As I said before, you can reach us, a reminder won't hurt, at Apps Policy Forum or Policy Forum Pod on Facebook or drop us a line, podcast at policyforum.net. And at this stage of the podcast, we usually introduce our new members. And this week, we would like to welcome Megan Hughes to our podcast. Casking. Really good to have you, Megan. And also a quick reminder to our new members, we still have some of these unique Got 99 Policy Problems by the Brew and one mugs left to give away. There are two ways to get your hands on one. So first, you can suggest a topic to us via the Facebook group. And if we later make that into an episode of Policy Forum Pod, I promise we will send you a mug. Or you could have your comments and questions read out on the Policy Forum Pod or Democracy Sausage. Please do remind us. We're a bit forgetful sometimes when you've actually discussed one of your comments or questions by leaving us a tiny little comment under the respective post. And once you get up to five, we will send you one of these mugs. And on our Policy Forum podcast group, we also keep a list of our favorite podcasts. What is on your playlist at the moment, Avery? Well, Yulia, I have a couple which are politics and policy related and then a couple which are decidedly not so much. <laughs> so in terms of politics and policy, I really like the um, Political Gabfest podcast from Slate um, and also 538. So both of those on, on US politics, which is obviously fascinating at the moment. Closer to home, I really enjoy The Party Room with Frank Kelly and Patricia Carvelis. Um, and of course, Policy Forum Pod <laughs> is always on my playlist in Yay. the car. Um, I think uh, these are two political luminaries, but um, this podcast is uh, deliberately not about politics for them, which is Chat 10 and Looks 3 with Annabelle Crabb and Lee Sales. I always enjoy that. And because I'm an insomniac, I'll also just give a little shout out for Game of Drones, which is a um, a podcast to help you sleep by providing synopses of Game of Thrones episodes wow. in a deliberately slow and, and dull manner. And that really helps me get to sleep. That sounds absolutely fascinating. I, I I'm sure our listeners will be very interested in this, and particularly those who struggle to go to sleep at night. It sounds like a very promising approach. So I'll definitely tune in next time I can't. Good sleep. <laughs> and we will, of course, add all of those suggestions that Avery has just made to our list. So check it out there. 
And we're, of course, also really keen to know what other podcasts you listeners enjoy. So please do send those to us and or add them to the little file in our podcast group, which is the most efficient way to do it. And also, we also want to know which topics you think we should cover on Policy Forum Pod. So come join us on our Facebook group. Just type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and you'll find us there. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. This episode has been produced by me, Julia Ahrens, with executive production by Martin Pierce, extra writing by Patrick Cooney, and editing by Branko Svetjovic. And we'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Julia, cheerio. Bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.